0: You've probably been hearing the term metacrisis a lot lately, and that's because it's become one of the most important words in the English language. It refers to the sum total of global challenges that threaten not only our health and well-being, but our actual civilizational and human survival. The metacrisis encompasses external threats such as ecological degradation, weapons of mass destruction, pollution, and more. But it also includes the inner psychological and cultural dysfunctions from which the outer ones stem. The two people who created the term metacrisis and who are two of the world's leading authorities on it are Sean Hagens and Nick Hedland, And they're with us today to help us understand the nature of the metacrisis, its implications for everything from our lives to our world and how we can best respond. Join us for a discussion of one of the most important issues of our time.
1: Welcome to Deep Transformation, self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution.
0: I'm Roger Walsh and our co-host is John Dupuy. And with us today are two philosophers. But if you think of philosophers as people who sit in ivory towers, divorced from the world, then this is not who these two people are. Both of them are deeply involved with the great issues of our time, deeply concerned with global issues. In fact, deeply concerned with the meta-crisis, a term which you may well have heard increasingly over the last couple of years, and a term which they actually coined. Our first guest, Nick Headland; our second, Sean eshborne Hagens, And together, they recently edited the book, Big Picture Perspectives on Planetary Flourishing, Meta Theory for the Anthropocene. They have both worked in different institutions concerned with the global issues. Nick Headland has founded the Eudaimonia Institute. Sean Hagens is founder of the Meta Int- Integral Foundation, which is both of them concerned with human flourishing, with bringing contemporary big picture perspectives and ideas to the great issues of our time, and both of them making very important contributions with their thinking and their innovative ideas. So welcome to both of you. It's a pleasure to have you with us. There's so much we can get into here, and there's, <laughs> hopefully we will, but maybe first, I mentioned that you both are really contributing to our understanding of the great issues of our time and the great threats we face. And perhaps it'd be good to bring this in at a personal level and just ask what brought you into this and perhaps a little bit about your own personal stories. Maybe we could start with you, Nick.
2: Great. Thanks, Roger. Yeah. I mean, it's for me, it's been, it's really been something that has been present for me since I was pretty young. And actually, in in high school, I started developing this deep relationship with the mountains through skiing. And I think that was an important background for the, these interesting mystical experiences that I started having when I was in high school. And I had this very palpable experiences of the, the earth speaking to me and expressing in this sort of trans way that we are in the midst of this some kind of crisis, some kind of a deep transformation, some kind of the feeling was very apocalyptic. And these were very disconcerting experiences in some ways, when I was in high school. And that sort of led me into college. And that was the only thing I wanted to learn about or study or engage with in any way was just what is what is happening on the planet? And I started to you know learn some of the science of what's happening with the ecological crisis and so forth. and And that was just deeply deeply touching and disturbing to me to understand that we're living on a planet that we're undermining, that we're destroying. And so through college, I was just drawn to understand the big picture of everything that was happening on the planet and what it means to be human at this time. And I was kind of disturbed to find that there wasn't a lot of support for that in the university system. And so I bopped around from discipline to discipline. I started out in environmental studies because that seemed like a natural fit to me. Pretty quickly learned that the kinds of questions I was asking just didn't fit into the paradigms of any of those disciplines. So I found myself in, in the office of the, the chair of the environmental studies department, asking these, these deep existential questions about why we're here and how we relate to nature and so forth. And he sort of pointed to me as, oh, maybe you should be in the philosophy department or the sociology department. And so I tried these other departments and always was the same sort of thing. I wanted to study the big picture in it and in the depths of it. And they wanted, they were studying these different fragments, these different partial perspectives more on the surface of things. And so I kept following that thread until I finally was able to construct my own major. I called it culture, ecology, and consciousness. And right around that time, somewhat synchronistically, I came across Wilbur Walk into the Boulder Bookstore, I was living at the time and saw this, this picture of Ken Wilber, this bald, this bald guy, and, and picked up the, this tome called Sex Ecology Spirituality, which really blew me away. And I realized, okay, this is the kind of work that I want to do. This is this is where the big picture all fits together. And, this, and it was this deep affirmation of what I was, these nebulous intuitions that I felt that the world actually has this, this holistic structure and these deep these deep questions these deep crises that we're seeing are all hanging together in some in some deep way so that pretty much set me on my path and got really into psychology and then philosophy and religion and so forth and for me it's always been very much a very much interconnected with my own spiritual path and my own personal process and so the contemplation of the world situation the meta crisis is very much for me connected to these deep questions about who who am i and why am i here and what does this all all mean so that's some of the the background of what brought me into this
0: beautiful yeah
2: nick you had me in the first
1: two sentences when you're talking about connecting to the earth and feeling that there's something wrong going on it's like oh i got a brother here okay and you didn't you didn't stray away from that thank you that was very very helpful
3: yeah Sean. Sure. Well, my story is really similar to Nick, and that's probably why we're such good friends and, and colleagues and, and working on the meta crisis together in the ways that we are. I was born in Washington, grew up in Oregon, and then went to grad school in California. So I've always been on the West Coast and just love the Pacific Northwest and, and being close to nature and the water and, you know, spent a lot of time out of doors growing up with my dad, and so when i went into college in in portland oregon at lewis and clark college i studied animal consciousness because my love for the natural world and just my interest in consciousness and the nature of reality led me into you know studying animal consciousness and like nick like there wasn't a program at school that allowed you to do that so i had to draw on philosophy, psychology, and biology. So I was essentially, you know, trying to triple major in order to get this kind of interdisciplinary understanding of animal consciousness. And my job during college was working with the outdoor program. And so I would lead trips, backpacking, kayaking, rafting on the weekends and in the breaks. So I was really into environmental philosophy. And, you know, so really exploring the natural world and what we're doing to it. And my dad, who's a builder, he passed away actually a few years ago, but he was a home builder. And he was very dismayed when he learned that I joined the Sierra Club <laughs> in college. Because, you know, we came from Coos Bay, Oregon, a small town that was really getting hit hard by the Clinton administration's environmental regulations on old growth forests and such. And so so early on I was kind of in this situation where I was trying to understand different perspectives relating to the natural world and what's happening on our planet. And, you know, it was very painful to be at odds with my mom and dad who had a more conservative orientation and, and my kind of emerging liberal global orientation. And so it was very intimate and personal and hard to, to kind of trying to come to terms with how is it we can look at the world in such different ways and have a different ideas about how to proceed. And and I headed off to Peace Corps and ended up in Africa. And in that process, I came across Ken Wilber's work. Someone sent me a brief history of everything. And that just rocked my world. I just, my mind just went. <laughs> and so I used my remaining, you know, vacation days to basically travel home to Portland, Oregon and go to Powell's bookstore and by sex ecology spirituality, because as best I could tell, sitting in my mud hut in Africa, that was the mother load of all books that this guy, Ken Wilber, had written. And if I really was turned on by brief history, I, I really needed to get a hold of that book. So I flew home and got it. And, you know, and Ken goes into <laughs> a deep critique of deep ecology and ecofeminism and a lot of the environmental philosophies that I really identified with. So I was really frustrated with Ken. I was like, "What are you doing?" Like, you know, like so. I was going through this real identity crisis because he was pointing out the ways in which those approaches are true but partial, and and that wasn't easy to you know kind of receive because as far as I was concerned, they were nothing but true. There was nothing partial about these perspectives. So again, I was kind of in this place of like, "How is it this guy, Mister Wilbur, is seeing it this way, and I've been seeing it this way, and you know, and just kind of trying to coordinate these different viewpoints." But integral theory really gave me eyes to see. You know, it really gave me this framework to see reality in a much more differentiated, complex way. And I I liken it to intimacy. There was something about learning the frameworks of integral theory that allowed me to see more of the world and and be in relationship to more of the world. And in contrast to it being an abstract process it actually brought me into deeper contact with nature, with people, culture, with consciousness. And that was really profound because I'm you know, I'm a strong mental type. I, I like big pictures. I like mapping. I like diagrams. But to encounter this body of work, you know, integral theory that really opened my heart and allowed me to connect with reality in a much deeper way, that really kind of put me on the path to exploring what eventually became integral ecology on my dissertation, where I looked at 200 different schools of ecological and environmental thinking again trying to figure out how do we bring everyone to the table right like how do we get the wisdom from all these approaches to bear on the challenges we faced in a in a environmental global context but then that began to expand. And I started to learn more about the political crisis we're in, the economic crisis we're in, the crisis in higher education. And I started realizing, like, wow, there's a lot more crisis going on than just environmental or ecological. Like, there, things are, are really challenging right now across the board. And then that kind of brings us up to speed where Nick and I began collaborating with others and trying to wrap our hearts and minds around just the complexity of, of the moment that we're in and how we began to draw on various integrative meta-theories to help us understand how we might move forward together as a collective.
0: And that's clearly the unique contribution that you're both making, is bringing these many different perspectives and disciplines to bear on the great issues of our time and seeing the way the, the multiple challenges we're facing, deeply interconnected and interdependent and effectively self-mutually catalyzing or exacerbating. And you both have created a term which has turned out to really have a lot of leverage over the last few years and just has exploded in the the world of those people who are deeply concerned with global issues. And that's the term metacrisis. So perhaps you could elucidate that term for us.
3: Yeah.
2: Nick, do you want to kick that off? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, Sean and I were sitting around in the meta Integral office back in, in 2015. And we were talking about how we weren't quite satisfied with a lot of the, the ways that people are thinking about the world situation and the, the different terms that are present. And, and we liked, we liked a lot of them, but none of them quite captured the, the full story, the the holistic complexity that we were sensing. And so we came up with this term metacrisis. And I think what we're really trying to get at is the sense that not only are there all these crises in all these different realms from the ecological and the technological, the political, the economic, ethical, existential, yeah. epistemic, all these dimensions of life, there's all these different crises. So it's more than just sort of the sum of those crises but it's also understanding that all those crises are profoundly intertwined, profoundly interconnected, and they're overlapping and interpenetrating and there are the feedback loops and networks that are connecting them. So we really can't separate separate out any of these crises from the others. And if we try and solve any one of these crises by themselves, we find that they feedback on the others and that we new problems are created, new complexities are are emerging. And so this, this idea of wicked problems gets at that aspect of it, which is really helpful. So it's kind of like the, the myth of the Hydra in Greek mythology. When Hercules tries to chop off one of the heads, two or three of them grow back and you have this exponential problem, this, this wickedness in terms of trying to address the problem. So we're trying to create a concept that can penetrate into the, in a sense, the, the belly of the beast, right? So, the idea of the meta-crisis is also getting at the, the notion that, you know, you know, why is it that all these these crises are connected? And so, you know, we argue that they have these, they share these network of deeper causes, of, of root causes. And so, there's a, there's a pattern of deeper causal structures that are underlying these symptom events that we're experiencing. And that there are different construals, there are different perspectives on those events and those causes and that's all connected together in what we call the meta crisis and then you know the, the final element of would say is that there's a sense that there's a crisis that's behind all these crises right and and so we really we really wanted to highlight the sense of interiority consciousness and culture and spirituality and psychology and all these the facets of, of the inner life that we feel like are so profoundly intertwined with what the meta crisis is and so in that regard we we really wanted to highlight the ways that we feel the structures of consciousness that we're inhabiting self-understanding that we inhabit as a collective our our modes of sense making that these these aspects are not separate from the meta crisis that we're facing they're actually part and parcel of it and they're the deep drivers of it so a lot of it has to do with a crisis of sense-making and a crisis of, of meaning-making and the fundamental frames that we're inhabiting our lives from. And so it, so the, the idea of the meta-crisis was an attempt to sort of illumine all that and speak to this, the nebulous intuition that so many of us have. All the, the changes that we're going through, the crises that we're facing are actually profoundly connected.
0: Yeah, and a very important perspective. And one of the major contributions you're both making is bringing in the recognition that these, what we call our global problems, are actually global symptoms. They're symptoms of our individual and collective psychological, spiritual disorder, disease, etc. And that that's a that's a very important contribution because when I first started looking at this you know, these issues, they were you know the the they were looked at and and the solutions were thought of in terms of military, economic, political, etc. So you're really bringing in a very important important element here, and a depth in the appreci- in helping us to appreciate the, the psychological, cultural, spiritual, internal roots of these things. Sean, what would you add?
3: Yeah, you know, Nick and I are both um, familiar with the work of Edgar Moran. We were exposed to Edgar Moran's work when we were graduate students at California Institute of Integral Studies. In San Francisco area, and Moran is a French intellectual, and you know, like Wilbur, like a broad thinker, big picture thinker, and in his work, he talks about the poly crisis, and so you know, from that, we have this sense that we're in multiple crises, you know, and so Nick and I had created a a symposium series between critical realists who are students and scholar practitioners of Roy Bashkar's critical realism and and then similarly scholar practitioners of Ken Wilber's integral theory. And so we kicked off a symposium process in 2010 and, and met four times over the next five years And so when Nick is saying, you know, we sat down around 2015 and we're kind of talking about this, it was really in the context of one, being familiar with Edgar Moran's work, but also being deeply immersed in a collective conversation with about 60 scholar practitioners, half of which were familiar with Wilbur's work, half of which were familiar with Roy Bashkar's work. And we had spent every year, often getting together for, you know, one to three days, talking about our respective kind of big picture maps and theories of reality and how they were similar and different and both wilbur and bashkar have a a lot of powerful distinctions to help us think about what we now call the metacrisis. you know it helps us think about the relationship between culture and consciousness and nature and and gives us a lot of tools to basically have like i said before the eyes to see right? To be able to bring into focus kind of the the full magnitude of the crisis, but also the expressive capacity to talk about it, to talk about it in a more nuanced way and to think about applications and, and what are the challenges of human psychology that are getting in the way of us collectively seeing the situation for what it is or coordinating ourselves into action to try and address it more effectively. And when we sat down and we were thinking about this term, very likely that the word metacrisis had been used elsewhere. But I think the ways in which Nick and I think of ourselves as potentially really introducing that word for the first time was, we we introduced that word in the book, Meta Theory for the 21st Century, which was an edited volume that came before the one you introduced at the beginning of the show, Roger. And it was bringing together these voices from these two different scholarly camps. And, and we were explicitly saying, look, the value of integrative meta theory is it's so complex in its ability to see and describe reality that we really need that level of theorizing in order to be able to see and respond to what we're now realizing as a set of multiple crises and as nick was highlighting i think what stood out for us is unlike the term crisis that moran uses that tends to emphasize the crisis is external right it's an economic crisis it's an environmental crisis it's a political crisis I think for us, realizing coming from kind of a Wilburian and Bashgarian viewpoint is realizing the importance of consciousness, human consciousness, and that it's, it's both an external and an internal crisis. And so over the last few years, we've seen a lot more discussion of the, the importance of sense making and meaning making and kind of existential aspects of the crisis. And so metacrisis for us was a way of highlighting both the internal and external crises and how they're very interrelated.
1: Yeah, I, I was thinking that that when we edit this, we can put your your diagram that you guys spoke about and used in one of your talks and it's in your dissertation that just kind of lays out the metacrisis. Oh, that's what we're talking about. I think that would be really helpful. And I mean, it's a starting place for those of us who, well, are just becoming familiar with the term. It really lays it out. in. And start clarity. And I still have a question from my reading and, and just getting into it, and getting very excited about what you guys are doing. When you say critical realism from the Baskarian school, I, I get to think there's the observable, and then there's the real. And is that talking about interiors when you say the real, or what? What is that getting at? I think if we had that, it would help. It would help me anyway to to understand a little more deeply what you guys are bringing together.
3: Yeah, and maybe, Nick, as you respond to that, maybe you can address why having a good theory of ontology and of consciousness, you know, wilber kind of gives us a good theory of consciousness, Bashkar gives us a really good theory of ontology, why we need both of those to really understand and respond to the,
2: the meta-crisis, Nick.
0: And, and to tell us what ontology is.
2: <laughs> yeah, so ontology is, you know, simply put, it's it's just... Reality. It's the study of reality, study of being. It's the study of the world, and that can be contrasted with epistemology, which is our knowledge, how we know the world, how we gain knowledge of of reality. And John, so you asked about the relationship between the real and the the empirical realms, and you know, if is that does that something that applies to interiority, or is that something that these are we're talking about exterior and material things and So, yeah, this is a really important one in the way that I hold it in in critical realism. The real, the actual, and the empirical are these three strata of reality. And those, those things cut across the interior and exterior dimensions of reality. So there, you can find them in all, all the dimensions or the quadrants and according to integral theory. And so the, the real refers to these, these forces or these causal forces, these generative mechanisms that are then under certain circumstances, expressing certain concrete events. And those events can be observed or not. They can there can they can be empirically disclosed or not. And so you have, say, in the interior personal dimension, you've got structures like developmental structures of consciousness, and those those are actually structures on the level of the real that manifest as certain events. And those events may or may not be, directly experienced right so it's a it's a way of also understanding that reality has this depth dimension to it and so in that sense there's an essence to every everything that can't be reduced to the ways that it's expressing in form and so that there's a profoundly anti reductionistic notion in that that's i think really helpful and tends to express a certain complexity that can't be reduced to any particular concrete event
3: and what I might just add is, you know, part of what critical realism is doing is it's a form of realism, meaning like there's something real independent of our observation of it or its expression of itself, right? And it's a critical realism. It's it's critical realism because it's not a naive realism of like what you see is what you get, right? It's it's, a, it's this understanding that there are aspects of reality that we don't necessarily see that are still have an influence on the way reality shows up. There are different methods we can use to get at the real, which is that deep strata Nick was talking about. And so it's a very kind of sophisticated philosophy of science or a scientific methodology of of understanding how can we talk about the things that exist independent of their observation by, by human beings, for instance, or independent of their potential expression in the world because there are certain realities that don't always express themselves, but nevertheless kind of exist subterranean and under certain conditions might express themselves, right? And you can think of this in terms of climate change or socioeconomic dynamics and kind of ways in which reality shows up and, and how do we study that and understand that.
0: So you've given us some some background for understanding these issues here. And I want to come back to... To the meta crisis, because that's your that's your central concern, and you've pointed to some of the dimensions that are involved here. Maybe you could speak to the elements of the meta crisis. What are some of the things you that concern you as you look at look at our world now and what we're going to have to do to, in order to to preserve ourselves and our civilization? What are some of the great challenges that you see facing? Some have been mentioned, but there are others. I know you've listed quite a few.
2: Yeah. John,
3: you want to go? Yeah, I'll just say a couple of things and then you can build on it. You know, since Nick and I introduced the term metacrisis, our first book together in 2016, you know, there's been a number of thinkers in the kind of integral theory space, like Zach Stein, Daniel Smuckerberger, even Jonathan Rawlson with Perspectiva. You know, a number of individuals who have kind of picked up and and built on this notion of metacrisis. And it's interesting because each of them, generally identifies a different set of components of the meta crisis. So we're not all on the, you know, same page as it were as to the different aspects of the meta crisis, but I think everyone's kind of pointing to the same kind of level of multifaceted nature and and I I think there's a lot of coherence and consistency across the approaches. You know, Nick's been really diving into this in a profound way kind of trying to understand the meta crisis and i think the model he's developed which you know has an ethical crisis an existential crisis and an eco-social crisis and those kind of represent the poly crisis because those are all kind of external and then nick also talks about the epistemic crisis which refers to our consciousness and our individual perception of those other crises. And then all of that together is the meta crisis, right? So that, you know, in the model that Nick's been developing, there's, you know, these four components of the meta crisis and, and each refers to kind of a subset of challenges we face collectively as a humanity and, and on the planet. So Nick, why don't you build on that and correct me if if I've left anything out in terms of kind of the the model you've been developing to help us understand the, the core elements of the meta crisis.
2: Yeah. I mean, some of the, the components of it are important to mention, too, in terms of like the, the ecological crisis. And, you know, I think many of us are quite familiar with these things these days, but I think it's good to just mention, you know, the, the situation like, say, with climate change, for example, and really understanding like how we're at a very critical point in, in the process and that we have many ways crossed these planetary boundaries with regards to CO2 or at the safe operating space for humanities 350 parts per million and we're now like 420 something like that. And so like in with regards to the planetary boundaries, we have crossed many of these boundaries. And so there's there's a real sense of urgency to all these these issues that we're we're facing. And with regards to the epistemic crisis and the existential crisis, I think it it really highlights that there's a way that we need to step into. I'm uh, I'm kind of choking to be honest right now. Well, hey, thank you for saying that. I never
1: had the guts to say it when I'm choking, and that yeah. happens. So, God bless you for that, Nick. Yeah,
0: very important. That's yeah, really important. One yeah. of the questions I wanted wanted to ask is, you know, which of the elements of these this meta crisis touches each of you most deeply? Because each of us is really touched by by certain aspects of this.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I definitely
1: have some follow-up for, for that that I want to ask. So.
3: Yeah. I can say maybe a few things too, Nick, and that might help you kind of get your bearings. Yeah. So let me just take a couple minutes to provide a little more detail around the different elements of the model Nick's been developing. So if we think of the eco-social crisis, you know, this includes climate change, obviously, biodiversity loss. You know, we're in the sixth extinction, the nuclear war and pollution, GMOs. You know, so a lot of these issues related to the environment. If we think of the ethical crisis, we're talking about inequality, racial injustice you know, gender inequality, the abuse of animals, homophobia, classism, right? So all these ways in which how we relate to each other and treat each other with kindness. With respect to the existential crisis, it's things like alienation, the occurrence of mass shootings, you know, that are you know particularly frequent here in the United States, the opiate crisis, the suicide epidemic that's happening in a number of sectors and with different populations just overall decline in well-being, psychological exhaustion and so so those all kind of represent different existential crises and those three crises kind of form what we think of as the poly crisis kind of external crises and then there's the many of them have an, an internal or psychological cultural dimension but we often talk about them as kind of being out there kind of you know outside of ourselves. But then, when we think of the epistemic crisis, it's like the crisis of how do we make sense of all of that? How do we hold all of that? So, you know, we have fake news and information wars. We have decreased attention span and memory. We are in a post truth era where we don't know who to believe and how to believe. You know, there's the political polarization, right? So, there's all these things that impact our ability to make sense of what's happening. So, not only are these crises happening all around us, but we've even lost the ability to talk about them, make sense of them, compare notes, to agree on what are the core issues here. And some people will hyper focus on aspects of the ethical crisis, kind of, and ignore aspects of the ecological crisis or diminish the aspects of the existential crisis. Right. And, and so we end up being polarized, even in our efforts to try and address the many types of crises that we're facing collectively. Right. And so this is where I think the integrative meta theories that Nick and I work with are so helpful, because even though they're complex kind of intellectual frameworks, they provide a way of talking about and understanding the interrelatedness of of all of these variables and and provide a roadmap of how we might proceed to address these and get at some of the underlying roots of what's going on here.
1: And how do we figure in? the developmental issues. I live in the Deep South and I get around, I travel a lot and I ask a lot of questions. I listen to a lot of different people and and in certain large segment of our population, if you say global warming or environmental crisis, you get attacked, not necessarily physically, but verbally. You're seen as the enemy and the representative of some deep conspiracy to somehow take away our liberties. And it's not real. And it's just like how does this figure in the developmental part, I guess? And I struggle with this all the time. I'm not suggesting that I that I have, you know, clear answers, though I do struggle with this.
3: Nick, given your work on worldviews, do you want to kick this off?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to also to hear from you, Sean, and with regards to the, the your work with integral ecology and the eight eco-selves and all that. But yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, actually, do you want to give a, a go, Sean?
3: Yeah. So... Yeah, John, I think, you know, this is kind of such a core issue. You know, you look at topic like climate change, global warming, there's not a lot of agreement, even within the scientific disciplines, there's so many different sciences involved and they're focused on different aspects of the problem and they have different kinds of data sets. It's not always clear how to translate the data set from the meteorologists into the data sets of the oceanographers into the data sets of you know any number of scientific disciplines that are involved with the study of climate change so i mean there can be agreement that something's happening but there's there's often not agreement as to what are the main causes or the main next steps or how to talk about it. And that's just within a scientific context. Then you bring in culture and values and developmental perspectives, and it gets even more kind of messy. And in the book, Integral Ecology, Michael Zimmerman and I kind of lay out the eight major developmental worldviews, you know, kind of building on Jane Lovinger's work and that Ken Wilber's popularized and, and others have built on to show that traditional worldview, or a modern worldview, or a postmodern worldview, or a more integrative worldview, just to name four of these major kind of perspectives that we see develop over a person's lifespan, that they view and relate to the natural world very differently. Like the the way nature shows up in the context of their value system ranges quite a bit. So some of the really interesting work on climate change has taken this into account, and basically said, well, we We also have to we can't just be scientists speaking to scientists we we have to you know translate this and be in conversation with with different viewpoints around this and in that book there's a really interesting example that we give around integral forestry that occurred in Canada. There was this community that had a lot of forest and they weren't managing the forest very well and you know the Lumber industry was at odds with kind of the the local artists and hippies, you know, and new agers that were living in the community. And so there was a lot of kind of worldview clashes around the natural resources. And the Canadian government threw a bunch of money at this situation, trying to find a way through it, just to revive the economy and to, to figure out how to deal with this, because it was really important for the whole region. And nothing seemed to work. They would bring everyone to a big round table, literally, and have all these kind of stakeholders sitting around. And they it just made the problem worse because people get really polarized and triggered in those conversations, those round table conversations. And it actually, it entrenched the polarized viewpoints. An integral practitioner came along and basically just started going out and talking with each of the kind of representatives of these different worldviews or or stakeholders, you know, just having more intimate conversations and building a heart-based connection and slowly built a coalition by not bringing everyone to the table, but by going out and having more heartfelt one-on-one or one-on-two, one-on-three conversations and slowly connecting people who were more open to the viewpoints of the individuals representing the the other perspectives. And then they were able to create a community-managed forest, right where everyone was involved and there was buy-in across the range of perspectives right and i think this is an interesting example on in because the canadian government just threw a bunch of money and tried to get a quick solution and they ended up spending i think several million in the process and with no results this process took a lot longer but didn't cost nearly as much and ultimately was successful right so i think it's, it's instructive in that often in these situations It really comes down to more conversations one-on-one and what an integral theory we refer to as taking perspectives, seeking perspectives, and then coordinating perspectives, right? So when you're dealing with so many varied and, you know, kind of oppositional perspectives and viewpoints, you have to learn to take the perspectives and understand where people are coming from. But that's not enough because that's just kind of can be an intellectual project of, you know, kind of looking at the situation from those different vantage points. The next step is taking perspective, I mean, seeking perspectives. So you have to go out and talk to people and you have to talk to them in a way in which you are actually vulnerable to being transformed by their perspective right so you have to be really open to being touched by how they see things and allow your own understanding to be transformed as a result of that engagement so that it's a really authentic conversation of of mutuality in a sense and then that seeking perspectives can then lay the groundwork for the next step which is coordinating those perspectives and so in this example of integral forestry basically, the Canadian government just tried to have anyone take each other's perspectives, and that didn't work. It was really the perspective seeking of a small group of people going out and talking with a lot of the different representatives of these value systems, and then building that relationality. And then from there, being able to coordinate those people and the organizations they represented into a larger shared activity that ended up being the community management of this very large, you know, section of forest, right? And so I think given the highly polarized nature of our our culture, you know, like this is a really interesting consideration of like, what would it look like to engage in more perspective seeking and and not just perspective taking that I think we really have to, like you're saying, we have to get out there and have conversations with people with very different viewpoints. But I think the developmental model that we use in our approach helps us remember that nature shows up very differently for different people. And to have an understanding of those values and perceptions and experiences of the natural world or of climate is it helps us then have a conversation with people who see it very differently. And you know, a big part of the integral model is we have to learn to inhabit all of those different possible viewpoints in ourselves so that when we're talking with people who represent those different viewpoints, we can actually be talking with them even if we hold additional perspectives that maybe they don't have access to but we can genuinely connect with their viewpoint and we can appreciate and understand where they're coming from and we can see the value of it right so there's not this hidden kind of view that my perspective is better than your perspective it's a more heartfelt view of my perspective can connect with you in your perspective but I'm also considering other layers that might ask us to open up to additional possibilities. Right? That's a very different heart-based approach than kind of an intellectual mapping and saying, well, that's interesting, but you're leaving out X, Y, and Z. Because that, you know, people don't respond well to that. You know, It's like, well, wait a second, what do you mean I'm leaving something out? <laughs> like, you know, this is how I see it. This is how it is, right?
1: So they, they begin to see you as an ally <laughs> and not somebody yes. to, to tell them the right way and they're wrong and that's hugely important
2: absolutely
1: really really essential practice and you described it really well i appreciate that thank you please stay tuned to part two of this remarkable conversation it just gets better as we open our minds and our hearts to some of the great questions and issues that confront us in these times today's episode was brought to you by iWake technologies visit the deep transformation website find out more about iawakes audio tools designed to wake us up grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice thank you for joining us if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the deep transformation podcast and we greatly appreciate your comments suggestions and questions thank you for all you are and all you do from john roger and the deep transformation team